Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Silver Screen Podcast for this newest episode in which we are talking about a particularly relevant film right now. Uh, we're going to be discussing Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. Uh, as I have mentioned on uh, social media and the like, I'm trying to review movies that are relevant to things that are coming out right now. And uh, in case you've been living on an island or under a rock, there is obviously a new Batman film due out imminently uh, with Robert Pattinson in the title role directed by Matt Reeves, so we are looking back at the original. Well, not the original, because I suppose there's the 60s version, but Batman 89. Uh, and uh, as is sometimes the case, which I do actually like when these podcasts come up, I have been able to actually introduce this film to somebody, so it's not just a rewatch for the both of us. It is for me, but not for my guest. Uh, and I'm joined by an old friend to uh, to view this movie for the first time. Go ahead, introduce yourself then. <laughs> You're insane. Uh, hello, Michael. Um, my name is Will. We, of course, have done a couple of podcasts together over the years. Well, over the one year and a half. One, one or two. I don't even know how many. I, I think it's still on one hand. Is it on one hand or is it on two now? I have no oh, idea. Probably a few. More than, yeah. yeah, more than 10, I think. Yeah, so yeah, if you can stand me, well... I'm infecting another bloody channel of yours now, so hello. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's Will. Obviously, uh, he has the um, what's it called, the Big Screen Podcast that you do. Uh, so big Screen kind Podcast, of a, yes. Yeah, kind of a crossover from there because we both have our podcast talking about movies, and uh, we both yeah, I think yeah. are film fans. But you know, you have no right to call yourself a film fan unless you've seen Batman '89. So. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so obviously you you mentioned to me when I asked you to come on this one that you hadn't seen the movie before because you've got a bit of a blind spot for older superhero films. Uh, yes, so when we did watch Batman and Robin, like the 80s or 90s or whatever it was, <laughs> that was my first time yeah. watching that. And that's actually my first experience and taste to older, older you know, not Spider-Man films. Of course, I was, I was yeah. I'm just thinking of Spider-Man, of superhero films. Uh, and this is actually my second taste of old Superman, uh, Superman, bloody hell, superhero Batman. films. Yeah, I'm naming everyone except for Batman. <laughs> superhero films. This is my second experience yeah. to an old one. I've seen plenty of new ones, but uh, the yeah. old ones never really, you know, enjoyed. And Batman and Robin probably wasn't the best example. To yeah, I feel really bad for introducing you to this franchise with Batman and Robin, easily the worst one of them. But... <laughs> yeah, but this is just levels above. <laughs> Yeah, well, it goes without saying, not to spoil too much, but yeah, it would be hard mm. to be worse than Batman and Robin, so I don't suppose that's giving much away. Um, exactly. But yeah, we uh, we have got, I think, some uh, reviews of uh, Batman, Robin and Superman kicking about on uh, Spotify or around and about places, so I'll yeah. probably link them somewhere. Um, that's cool. So uh, yeah, this was the first time you'd seen this particular Batman movie then, so mm. without too many spoilers, what were your initial impressions going into it? Uh, first impressions of the actual movie, or like, yeah, yeah, prior Just, thoughts. Okay, yeah. Well, well, both really, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a surprisingly tight script. I think. I think mm. uh, there was some much more emphasis on actual story. I think mm. if we compare it to the Nolan trilogy, which I'm sure we're going to do uh, mm. points across this uh, episode, I do think there was more emphasis on uh, story other than visuals. And of course, the visuals was great. I know there was like a tur um, a tight turnaround. Uh, for this film so they had to film you know really quickly and sometimes it does show it is stayed in places uh but yeah i think the story is elevating this uh movie by like a star or two on to my final star because how it was made sure um it's very impressive of course but i guess it does feel fit very into the 80s mold you know what i mean like the makeup 
the yeah, just yeah. general props and stuff like that. But yeah, I was pleasantly surprised and I quite liked it. Cool. Uh, well, that's why I kind of wanted your, I, I was interested to hear your particular opinion on this one because obviously I kind of grew up with this movie. I was about eight, I think, when it came out. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, I, your eye would probably, being much younger, be like more aware of things that look dated, whereas I was watching it trying to see what looked dated and couldn't really think if anything was too bad. But I know that's just kind of my, uh, you know, blinkers looking at the past with the rose-tinted glasses. But yeah. um, I'm sure we'll mention some things that I would be like, oh, right, okay, I suppose, yeah, they do. <laughs> but uh, mm. I was trying to come up with things that were like... Uh, that, that might not have aged so well. And there's a couple of things I'll mention, but not uh, anything too egregious. Um, no, no, no. So just before I get into kind of fast facts and stuff, then what did you think about the the marriage of uh, Tim Burton to the source material? Because I'm assuming it's a director you know about. Uh, yes. So you want me to compare, you know, the Batman law to... What yeah, did you think it was a good, uh, a good fit for Tim Burton? And how do you think it compares to any of his other movies that you've seen? <laughs> oh, geez, I'm going to guess... Uh, filmography up. Uh, I've, I've only seen three of his films. Denver, really? Oh, okay, fair enough. Which is like an animated live action, so that's kind of weird. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which again is like a live action animated, so it's not really much to go off. Uh, but mm. yeah, I really have to watch more. Big Finish, uh, Big Fish, should I say, has been on my watch list for years. So yeah. you know, I have to get around to that. Uh, but yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, man, that's that's actually my favorite adaptation of the film. I'm oh wow! Not sure. <laughs> That's I, know, I know the original is very popular, but you know, this is the one that I kind of grew up on, the one that was on TV, on BBC, and whatever. Oh, more. Okay. So, you know, yeah, okay. and I liked it. And I, you know, like the and chances are scene. you'll find um, you'll find you mesh with Burton's sensibilities if you like what he did with that kind of source material. Uh, mm. it bodes well, I think, for Batman because he has his own stamp on a lot of things. Um, I'm, I haven't seen a lot of his newer stuff, but I know, like, obviously, being older than you, as I say, the 80s and 90s was where I saw like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and um, uh, his kind of Mars attacks things around that era, uh, which yeah. were very much like he's he's definitely an author. You can tell a Tim Burton film, and obviously, Batman and Batman Returns as well. Mm. Um, but so, like, yeah. with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and this film in Batman it gets a sense of claustrophobia really really well and it's like a massive scope in terms of sets the sets are huge and sometimes you can feel quite isolated and lonely like in the uh the diner scene in the when they're across the tables together and he gets that really well but then also when it comes to more the grungy stuff the evil stuff the mm -hmm. plotting it does really get tight and i really like the contrast in direction from the good versus evil for example and I think there's yeah, a think, distinct uh, difference. Yeah, I think even when he does things that are supposed to be nice, there's kind of a weird, sinister nature, I guess, to them, and they're kind of grotesque. And uh, yeah. he's not interested in kind of lightness as much as he is in the weird and the freakish. Um, I don't think he'd mind me saying that as such, because he's kind of made that his career. So as I say, I think the, the melding of Batman, as soon as you see Batman and Joker as kind of opposites of each other and realize they're both this kind of tortured freak and they both have their own issues uh, you can see why tim burton would be like oh that might just interest me you know yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, awesome well um i've got just a couple because i like to start out with like fast facts and stuff about the movie so bear with and cool. if i'm boring you just give me a shout or whatever <laughs> um but yeah the movie was in uh, development for years uh, but was finally greenlit after the success of Beetlejuice. Uh, Burton was actually given the project after Pee-wee's Big Adventure hit big, but it wasn't officially greenlit till Beetlejuice, which is a brilliant movie, and I do recommend it. Um, that film, though, did lead to 
part of the controversy. There was huge, there was no internet as such back then, but when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman, it was similar to what you might know about what happened when Heath Ledger was cast, in that people were like, no, it's a comedy actor. He's the crazy Beetlejuice guy. He's Mr. Mom, and we don't want a comedic Adam West Batman. And then people saw the movie and immediately shut up, as was often the case with these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jack Nicholson, speaking of that, um, accepted the role of the Joker, but under strict conditions that he gets top billing, which I've always noticed because I always find it weird that even on like the current DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, it's listed as Jack Nicholson, then Michael Keaton. Mm. He um, got the most money yeah. from it as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. Well, he made a deal yeah. whereby he, um, he, he took slightly less, but under the condition that he got a portion of the film's earnings, including anything gotcha. off merchandise. So that what he's made is astronomical considering. I can imagine, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it's like 50 times more than he would have made it. The, the height, most years. This was uh, in like oh, yeah. the late 80s. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, it was because that was the other thing I was going to mention is that they, it started something which I lived through called Batmania, yeah. which is really weird to explain. And uh, for somebody that wasn't there, but I'm going to try, uh, which is it's bizarre that this logo that you can probably see in my like screen here, um, that yeah. was all they used to market the film. There was no film poster or anything. The film poster was that logo, and that logo just began appearing everywhere. People were getting it. Um, I think Kevin Smith has a quote somewhere where he's like, people are getting it shaved into their blooming heads, you know what I mean, because <laughs> everyone's going Batman crazy. Right. Um, and I do remember that for Christmas of 1990, which was the year we got it in the UK, uh, that my parents did buy me a toy Batmobile with firing missiles based on the one in the movie and um, a Batwing water pistol <laughs> based on the one in the film, um, even though I wasn't really a Batman fan. It was just that it was that everywhere in the world. And it was like, if you have a boy, these are what they're going to want. Batman is huge at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that kind of forced me into being a fan of this movie and of Batman in general. I was way more of a, a Superman or a Spider-Man kind of guy, I guess. Until oh, we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, talking of the, the gross and in terms of uh, what it managed to get for Nicholson, uh, he made quite a bit because this, at the time of its release, was the fifth highest grossing film in history. Uh, mm. So... Yikes. Uh, it received uh, multiple Saturn Award nominations and a Golden Globe nomination for Jack Nicholson. And it won an Oscar for Best Art Direction, which I would say was thoroughly deserved. And yeah. uh, I think you, yeah, you yeah. probably agree, considering what you've already mentioned. Absolutely. Um, yeah, art design, fantastic. Uh, and of course, it also inspired the equally successful Batman, the animated series, which paved the way for the DC animated universe. Uh, yeah, obviously, the Danny Elfman theme is basically the theme to Batman the Animated Series, if you've ever seen it. Yeah, and... I heard the composer, you know, stuck around for that animated series. <laughs> or like, Yeah, the Shirley orchestra. Walker. The, yeah, yes, yeah, the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the Batman Animated Series, if you've, uh, if you've never seen it, it's fantastic. But it takes all of its cues from the Tim Burton film in the way that it's kind of uh, noir-esque and it's all shadows and it's trying to not be of a specific time period. It could be the 40s or it could be the 90s, you know what I mean? So uh, it takes all that and it's very much, it certainly starts out at least very much with like, we're only interested in Batman and not Robin and all these other supporting characters. It's just Batman and the Rose Gallery. Um, but yeah, I would personally say I prefer the animated series to the movies, but that's just me. Uh, I would say so, yeah, it's very good. Um, and yeah, obviously it influenced Hollywood in terms of how they would make and market and develop films and led to a huge resurgence in superhero films, which had kind of faded. They'd only been the Superman movies up till then. And that franchise had kind of uh, hit the dirt with some pretty terrible sequels by this point, number three and four, uh, and Supergirl. Um, so yeah, it kind of kicked that back off. It was also responsible for the introduction of the 12 rating uh, from the British Board of Film Classification. Uh, which didn't exist until then because there was too much uh, for it to be given a PC rating, but they didn't want to give it a 15 certificate because it would cut out a lot of your audience that might go and see it. 
So we have this movie to thank for the 12th certificate. And then weirdly, Spider-Man is responsible for the 12A certificate. <laughs> but uh, yeah, superheroes always trying to you know, What's corrupt the our kids. What's between the 12 and the 12A? I've never um, really understood. A 12 is basically nobody under the age of 12 can say it under any conditions. And That's a 12A right. is that if you're under 12, you can still say it as long as you're accompanied with an adult. Makes sense. Yeah, which is why it happened, because like Spider-Man was a 12, and they were like, it's not fair, my nine-year-old wants to see it, and I don't care, I'm happy to, for him to watch it. So that's when that mm. came in about. Um, yeah, okay. uh, let's see. Robert Wool, who plays Knox in the movie, uh, reprised his role in the fantastic uh, Arrowverse crossover, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which uh, I do love. It's the same character, and there's a quick uh, reference to the Bat-Signal and to Bruce and Selina Kyle getting married, uh, and that establishes that this film and its sequel take place in a, an alternate multiverse referred to as Earth 89 after the year it was released. Uh, mm -hmm. And speaking of which, Michael Keaton, who plays Batman of Earth 89, will be reprising his role this year in uh, the movie The Flash, presumably playing this multiverse's version of Batman. <laughs> when you messaged me wanting me to come onto this podcast, I thought I really got confused because I thought, wait, Michael Keaton's coming back? And then you just <laughs> did it again. You just did it again. I thought, oh my God, he's coming back in this Batman film. That's releasing soon. No, he's uh, he's not coming back in the Robert Pattinson movie, but he is confirmed to be in The Flash because that's kind of the plot of that is that he's changing history and opening the multiverse and a bit Doctor Strange-esque. So we assume Michael Keaton is playing this this Batman, but, you know, joining the DC universe or whatever. Um, but, yeah. We, All these we, universes, man, I'm confused. It's going to be really weird, but I think I have an inkling that they're going to go forward with Michael Keaton as the Batman of, of that universe, because you know how it's supposed to be Ben Affleck, but he's basically quit. Um, and when they've been filming the Batgirl movie that's coming out next year, uh, people have spotted Michael Keaton playing that Batman again. So it seems oh, like they're cool. going to merge the universes or something. And so he's, yeah, this kind of has a double meaning as this podcast, because that this version of Batman is now going to be potentially the DCEU's version going forward. But we'll hmm. see. <laughs> I could be very wrong about that. Um, awesome. And just quickly, I wanted to give a quote by Tim Burton um, because I think it relates to how he approached the film and uh, why he kind of would have took it because he wasn't really a big fan of the superhero nerd stuff. Uh, he just said, I was never a giant comic book fan, but I've always loved the image of Batman and the Joker. The reason I've never been a comic book fan, and I think it started when I was a child, is because I could never tell which box I was supposed to read. I don't know if it was dyslexia or whatever, but that's why I loved the killing joke, because for the first time I could tell which one to read. It's my favorite. It's the first comic I've ever loved, and the success of those graphic novels made our ideas more acceptable. So, yeah, okay. I think it's quite quite obvious that the, the comics and specifically the graphic novels of that era are a huge influence, um, especially The Killing Joke, which is the first time that the Joker had been given any attempt at an origin, which this movie kind of takes and runs with somewhat controversially. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's very hit or miss in that respect. Like some fans yeah. like yourself may say, oh, it's just too far from, you know, the source text or whatever. Do you think that? I'm kind of, well, I had I had mentioned uh, that like later on to bring up, but I'll talk about it happily now. Okay. I'm kind of um, I'm of a mixed opinion. Normally, I would be the kind of person I could see why you would say it that I would be like, no, it's blasphemy. Don't change the comics. But I think for the story that Burton's telling, it absolutely makes perfect sense. And in a way, I'm kind of like, if I was a filmmaker, I would say, don't be beholden to the comics law. But having said all of that, I do think that the way more authentic version that Christopher Northern and Heath Ledger did later was probably more effective for me because he did the cool thing of like, you never saw an origin. And even when he's telling you an origin, there's like three or four different ones and you never know where he's coming from. I find that a little bit more creepy and a bit more scary. Um, and I do find that the idea of 
the Joker movie that came out with um, what's his name, Joaquin Phoenix. That to me just reeked of a terrible idea because that is an entire just I'm yeah. not a huge fan of that film. Yeah, no, me neither. Because again, when you're doing an origin story, if you link it to Batman and you have something that you're saying, like this movie does, fair enough. But an origin movie just for the Joker as to why he is the way he is and stuff just really dilutes that character, I think, for me a lot more. Um, Which, as I say, there was a risk of that here. And some people would say that that is what Tim Burton does. But I think it works because of what he's, like I said, the story he's telling. Um, It makes a bit more sense. And the actual co-creator of the comic said that if he'd had the presence of mind at the time he created the character to make Joker the killer of Batman's parents, spoiler alert, um, that he absolutely would have done that, and it made complete sense. He was fine with that decision, so I was like, okay, well, it's got the approval of the guy at the top, so, you know. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to go scene by scene, try not to spend too long okay. on everything and uh, hit some main things, as you know, and then if you think of anything that you want to um, that I have missed or that you want to mention or I'll go into uh, more in depth, that's fair enough. Yeah, no worries, I just chicken. Awesome. And the first thing I want to mention is uh, the opening credits um, and just get your opinion of it, because I think it's very cool and arty. And obviously, I've mentioned the iconic Danny Elfman theme, which has become part of culture and has become the theme to the animated series and everything. Um, So what did Mm. you think of just the opening credits? (laughs) Oh, it was fantastic. You know, the utilization of the shadows and whatnot. And then I was like, Mm. okay, it's like a mechanical structure. And it kind of is, you know, the logo is Mm. not mechanical, but, you know, it does look very... And then uh, the slow reveal of it spinning and then it lights up. I was just like, oh my God. And that lasts for about, what, 60 seconds, maybe a bit longer. It's quite a and, while. You know, yeah. I mean, it does it does yeah. take its time. Yeah. 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 And I thought it was brilliant. It was like a James Bond-esque intro, but Batman-y. Yeah. And, you know, it really captured the tone because this film is incredibly, not like dark. Tonally it is dark, but in terms of how it was shot, like I can't think of a scene where it was, you know, bright and vibrant so you know it captures what this film yeah. is going to be very very early and i do respect it's, that yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that was one of the controversies at the time the movie came out is that a lot of people complained it was too dark i'd, I'd echo that i think you were about to say i'd argue against that uh but no you know, no i would have it be a bit brighter no i can i can see the point of view but it bugs me a little bit because um to this day my dad will not watch this movie or acknowledge it as a good movie because he obviously grew up with the adam west batman and stuff and whenever i mention like the current cinematic batman he's always like it's in the dark you can't see anything and i'm like oh, it's oh, wow. not that bad you know what i mean i, I get that it's filmed the cinematography is very dark and it's in maybe. shadow yeah and especially yeah. the new one that looks very dark but we'll yeah. see how that comes out it wasn't too bad, like in this film, because it while it is dark, it still pops, you know. There's mm. still enough color to you know make it stand out, and it's not like grungy feeling at all. But uh, yeah, yeah. just the shadows are you know there, and I think it just complements it rather than anything. It doesn't like bog yeah. it down. Well, the thing is, like I said, people of my dad's generation had really grown up with a Batman that was very out there, working with the police, flashy and everything, and this is supposed to be the more authentic comic book character that's like, no, I'm going to be in the shadows and scary and you don't know if I'm actually just like a bat creature or whatever. And that wouldn't really work if you could just see that it was Michael Keaton straight up, you know, but uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but that's one of the things I think Burton does really well is the use of kind of light and shadow, particularly when, when Batman's involved, um, because it does kind of keep the character a bit of a mystery until they get right up close at, at that point mm. and say, oh, look, it's body armor. He is human, you know? Yeah, it's um, like the scene in the car with... when she's looking at his eyes and stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. he uses the light in the car to, you know, get her attention away. That was a brilliant yeah. scene. That's probably my favorite scene of the film, actually. So awesome. understated, but brilliant. 
there's a lot of things I think like that as well that are quite understated, but that say a lot in like looks. Um, but yeah. I'll get to one or two of those probably later as well. Um, the opening scene of the movie I wanted to mention because I it never really occurred to me uh, as a kid because I hadn't really seen Batman's origin, even though we've seen it a million times now. Um, mm. But it seems to me like this scene is deliberately a mislead to make you think that it's showing you Batman's origin, and it's not. Because it's like a parent and a young kid leaving the theater and they can't get a cab and they're going past like criminals and a hooker and getting mugged in an alleyway. Um, and it's only when you realize that Batman's actually like coming down on those guys that it's like present day and it's not his origin, but it's so similar. Uh, yeah. What did you think of that scene? I just, again, I thought the direction was brilliant, you know, where it reveals him for the first time coming down mm. uh, behind from behind the wall and all you see is yeah. the shadow. First of all, the design of the Batman costume, I think it's fantastic. I think oh. it's, you know, with Doc Ock, for example, in the Spider-Man franchise. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. Uh, his tentacles <laughs> back in the day were practical, but nowadays they will see and people criticize it. I yeah. can definitely sense that the wings, for example, were certainly real and were certainly, yeah. you know, um, you know, lifted up practically and not through CGI. And I think that absolutely benefits it. And it's really tall. I don't know how I went on to a tangent about the bloody costume, but it kind of feeds into it, you know, the shadows no, it does, and, yeah, yeah. and how it's revealed. And I just think, you know, the intimidation scene where he comes up right to his face. And that's mm. when you get the first action scene. The, the use of the wings, the practical wings, was brilliant. So, yeah, it was just a fantastic oh, cool. scene. And, you know, him being lowered down several times during the film, you know, you can clearly see the wire in future um, scenes, but oh, that's yeah. intentional. But in the yes, first scene... grappling hook, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you don't see the, the hook or whatever, the, the wire, in that first scene, because there's, you know, fog or fog machines that emanate mm. smoke or whatever. And, yeah, yeah. it's just a well-rounded excellent... Di the direction okay. is fantastic. The direction I mean, is yes, Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. He's no slouch, yeah. I have to watch <laughs> more. I have to watch um, more from him. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you say that about the costume because I was worried that that was one of the things that wouldn't have aged well um, because the way that he's kind of like over the top posing with the wings like held up uh, of the cape to make it look obviously like the shadow of a bat and, and be scary. I was like, is that a little bit over the top or is it just the right level of like it's theatrical because it's Batman and, <laughs> you know? Um, mm. But like you said, if, if, if you're saying it probably worked better than CGI would, then it's hard to say that you could fault that and... That's cool. Good to know. <laughs> Although I do yeah. think personally for me, it struck a really bad chord when like it's OK from the background and that when he's trying to make the shadow. But then when he gets up close, when they've shot him and then he just gets back up and he still just lifts up the cape into a bat shape. And I'm like, at this point, there really is no need to do that. That's just just silly. Now. <laughs> sure enough, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But having said that, I mean, this is probably the most focus that Batman gets in the film. Uh, and it really was. In 1989 or 1990, uh, when you first saw the movie, it's hard to underplay just how big of a difference this was. Because like I said, if you imagine all that was culturally known of Batman was the Adam West character, this was a complete mission statement of like, no, no, this is not that. <laughs> this is yeah. very much the guy in shadows who's all about intimidation and scaring. And like you said, even the costume, it was a very conscious decision to make almost completely black. It's mm. not greys and blues and stuff. And uh, yes, it has the kind of yellowy gold symbol, but... Otherwise, it's very dark. So yeah. yeah, I did hear that um, this was like the first film to actually take the character seriously. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. like I said, the, um, the 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 prevailing wisdom and the cultural kind of phenomenon was that 
Batman is the Adam West character. He's kind of funny and it's kind of, um, you know, doing a dance and sock bam power effects and stuff. And because that show was so popular, that entire generation, like I said, probably our parents' generation or their parents just grew up thinking that's what Batman was because people didn't really read comics back then. So Neither uh, did Burn, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah. but And yet, weirdly made one that was way more authentic to the comics made a film like that because... Um, yeah, he took it a bit more seriously, but I mean, it's yeah. not to say that there weren't comics like that at the time that movie came out in the 50s and 60s, because there were. I mean, that's when you got characters like Mr. Freeze and the more ridiculous Batman characters, because comics just went that way. But then, as I said, at this point in time, you've got uh, things like Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, which are very serious, grounded versions, um, yeah. and the movie at least reflected that, thankfully. So I'd say you're okay. right, yeah, it's probably the first time it, the character was taken seriously and not as the kind of Boy Scouty superhero played for laughs so <laughs> have some wacky scenes with him mm. you know as a normal being but as batman i can't really think of a funny scene other than you know the scenes with the joker where that's you know really hammed up yeah well the joker kind of takes the lead with that obviously being the joker yes, um but yeah. batman isn't really a character that's supposed to be played for laughs he was always as I said, the, the actual batman fans of which i'm kind of partly one but nowhere near as much as some of the more hardcore they will tell you like no batman is dark and brooding and serious and all about the mission and they hated the adam west tv show which it's been reappraised a bit now for what it is which is just it's just fun camp you know just acknowledge it, it they knew it was a joke and they played it to that you know um yeah. but yeah having said that we've had multiple versions of batman by now so people are a lot more accepting of different ones um, oh exactly yeah that's my perspective on this one as well i was like yeah i, I know Same the origin here. story not the origin story but you know i know the interpretations of the origin story bringing on fair enough um, i meant to say that actually earlier so i'll bring it up now then have you seen the nolan um batman kind of origin stories then i i've seen the trilogy yeah 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 um, else, no 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 that's what i was meaning because obviously like okay. these ones were the first time around but then batman begins was a complete reboot that kind of for me works better as an origin story because it actually focuses on batman a lot more than this film's interested in doing exactly. um, yeah yeah uh, but yeah, obviously, like I said, the fact that at the time I can see why people might have been kicking off a bit about you've changed the law and made Batman's murderer someone else and everything. But looking at it now under the lens of like this is just one interpretation out of many of the character, I think I can appreciate it a lot more by the fact that it's not supposed to be the definitive only version of it. So yeah, ironically, um, I and I've seen other people say. Ironically, I prefer uh, Batman than Bruce Wayne in this film, specifically mm. to do with Michael Keaton's performance. Like, yes, very good overall, but I get the feeling that more attention, ironically, was focused on Michael Keaton as Batman. There was less depth to his character as Bruce Wayne. Would you agree yeah. with that? Because yeah, well, uh, it's a... Batman's the focus. Yeah, absolutely. And it's another note that I made a few times um, in, in my notes, but again, I'll bring it up now, is that Burton is clearly not that interested in Batman, except as a weird kind of reflection of his villains. Um, mm -hmm. And it comes, it, it takes it to its natural ex extreme in Batman Returns, which is like, there are two, arguably three villains in that movie. And Batman has like 19 minutes of screen time in two hours, because it's not his movie at that stage. It's about Catwoman and Penguin and the Max Shrek character, um, mm -hmm. because Burton has way more interest in him. Um, which is a lot of people love those movies and that movie, sorry. And uh, I can absolutely, it's iconic. I can see that it's hundred percent. Yes. But for me, that's why it doesn't really work as a Batman movie because Burton at that point is like, we know Batman's origin. We've done the whole him and Joker as duality. So now I'm not as interested in Batman as I am as these gross freaky villains that he's got to fight. 
So yeah, yeah, okay. Um, anyhow, I'll move to the next scene anyway because the next one is we introduce ourselves to uh, to Harvey Dent here, played by Billy D. Williams, who you might know as Lando mm. Calrissian from Star Wars. <laughs> um, uh, nope, I hate that franchise. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but yeah, the uh, the interesting thing about this is that Billy D. Williams was cast with an eye to making him two faced down the line because you probably know from the Dark Knight that is who Harvey Dent becomes. Uh, yeah. And Tim Burton was excited to do that somewhere along the way, but wanted him to also feed into this kind of duality and the black and white idea. So I think he was going to potentially have a two-face that was scarred with like the white acid on one side, and that's why he cast a black actor. Um, but controversially, when they did cast two-face for Batman Forever, they went with Tommy Lee Jones, even though it's supposed to be the same universe. So poor Billy D was kind of kicked to the curb, even though he was excited to play the role. Until a few years ago when they made the Lego Batman movie and cast Billy D. Williams as the voice of Lego Two-Face, finally bringing it full circle and letting him play the character. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that little Hollywood-type story. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, a memorable performance for me. Like yeah, it is. I mean, he, he doesn't get a lot to do. You can tell he's kind of a character that's there for, like, we're setting you up for the sequel, but, you know, do yeah. a little bit here. And he's there to give you the... Uh, the film noir detective type vibe of like this, we're going to clean up this town. We're going to get all these gangsters and yeah, it, it, it works, but it's an exposition machine really in this film, isn't it? So Yeah. It's more focused on, you know, the corrupt police officer, for example. <clears throat> no, I mean, the, that character is there, um, which come Eckhart, but again, he's never the focus. It's just, he's a way for the story to get from A to B with the, the crime bosses declaring war on each other and uh, betraying each other and stuff. So mm. yeah. Uh, which, as I say, that's what you're introduced to here. You meet Jack and you see that he is kind of basically sleeping with his boss's mall or gangster's woman or whatever you want to call her, played by Jerry Hall. <laughs> yeah, so. like the whole scene with Grimson, you know, he's holding like a Joker card uh, mm. as she walks into the room. And I thought that's brilliant foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, very, yeah, yeah. Excellent, yeah. Definitely. Um, I've already kind of mentioned this and we've talked about this, but I may as well, because I've made a note of it, that the city architecture and design, I think, is pure, just an expression of Tim Burton. His version of Gotham City couldn't have come from anyone else. Uh, well, him and obviously like Anton first and the people that designed it. Um, mm. Because it is, it's timeless. Like I said, it could be anywhere. Uh, there's a conscious effort not to show like computers as such or things like that in this era, other than when you get to the Batcave, which is, I guess is unavoidable. But like I said, the outside views, the cars and the buildings and stuff could be from any time, which gives it a timeless quality. Uh, and it's very art deco and extremely like gothic and a bit nightmarish, I guess, <laughs> which makes sense. So, yeah, it's like the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Yeah, yeah, completely. Think, it's, yeah. yeah, around that era, definitely. And uh, it's, it strikes me as one of the things that Burton, I would say, gets better than Nolan because Christopher Nolan is clearly just filming in Chicago. I will, I will not see the sacrilege. Big <laughs> out Christopher Nolan, best director out there. I'm not disagreeing with that. Well, I'm not here to disagree with that. We say, but I think yeah, yeah. He, his version of Gotham City is clearly just we're filming Chicago and seeing it's Gotham City, whereas this is very much a constructed reality. Um, although, having said that, it does lead to a few scenes where you're quite blatantly just filming on a studio backlot with like matte paintings and stuff in the background. Which, yes, uh, yeah. if you want to be kind of charitable as you were, is like well, that's so claustrophobic and cool, but. As I would see it, perhaps it's a little bit cheap. <laughs> you know? Oh, of course. But, you know, the most franchises uh, franchises did that back in the day. Indiana Jones, for example, oh, did it in yeah, the yeah. end of, uh, what do you call it, Temple of Doom? No, mm. Raiders. Raiders of the Lost, Raiders. great film. But the map here. And so, yeah, you know, 80s film, it's going to happen. Yeah. Especially I mean, I don't have an issue scale. with it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. 
<clears throat> That's fair enough. Uh, where was I going with this? The uh, we introduce ourselves uh, to the Gotham News office and to Alexander Knox, uh, who is mocked oh, yeah. for uh, he's mocked for chasing this bat that everyone's taken the mick out of, um, mm. which I like because it's kind of like at this point it's obviously early in his career and people aren't taking the character seriously. And we've never really had this idea in the films either that mm. the criminals are all terrified of him because he's like a supernatural thing, and the cops are like, oh yeah, what is it? Like giant bat sucking blood and stuff. <clears throat> awesome character like introduction but then he just got yeah. you know sidelines after about five minutes and i thought okay see you in about yeah. a half hour's time i guess yeah the film well i, I, I don't know i kind of like Knox in the movie but you're right he is I agree, yeah. again he's there to do stuff but um mm. one thing i did want to mention in this scene is that when he's handed the uh drawing that's like a mickey take of the bat in like a pinstripe suit uh, it's like, oh, we got a, a sketch for you of your criminal. Um, the person that drew that and it's signed with his name is Bob Kane, the co-creator of Batman. Uh, he drew oh, it for the movie, right. <laughs> which is a really nice touch. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, on, on a slightly more negative note, uh, we introduce uh, we are introduced to Vicky Vale, and it's incredibly sexist. I was like, ooh, this bit hasn't dated well because it's all like her long, ooh, luscious legs, legs and uh, <laughs> he's like, ooh, legs, and oh, you're a photographer. If you want to photograph me, you're gonna need a wide lens and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is this is bad. I mean, I know it's it's eighties, early nineties, but even still, this is incredibly sexist. But uh, yeah. yeah. At least having said that, they do try to subvert that by saying that uh, when she mentioned she's a photographer and he's like, oh, fashion and stuff. And then she says, well, yeah, but also like war photography and Cordoba Maltese. Exactly. Is, uh, brought it back down yeah. to her very quickly and made her, you know, a strong-ish character. Yeah, exactly. I think we needed that in that scene particularly. But yeah, we've mentioned like obviously Grissom, uh, we know, is setting up Jack, which is one of the things I mentioned uh, earlier to you when you were saying that a lot of the things are kind of played out subtly rather than spelled out for the audience. Because we don't know that Grissom knows what's going on until Alicia walks in the building and he's like, wait for me in the other room, sweetie. And then Alicia glances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alicia glances at Jack. And then Grissom's looking at Alicia, looking at him. And it's all just done in like the camera catching their eyes rather than explicit acknowledgement of it. So that mm -hmm. when, if you're a savvy viewer, when um, Grissom's like, Jack, you're my number one guy, you've got to go. You know, like he's being set up even before he rings the cop and he's like, I've got to. <laughs> tip off for you. This guy's looks gonna change. So, yeah, yeah, very good. And I get uh, a call eventually when it actually happens. Yeah, oh, well, that, that's off this platform because I've got things in my eye. Oh, I'm just gonna walk over here. Boom, splash. <laughs> Great. <laughs> as I said, the uh, there's a nice bit of exposition where Vicky and Knox, I think, are used quite well as the audience surrogates because we've been introduced to Batman, but not to Bruce Wayne, and they are at like the the Wayne Manor charity benefit for the city. Uh, and we, yeah, through them we see like Alfred running around after Bruce, which gives you the key of like he'd be lost without him. And uh, Bruce being a bit nervous, introducing himself to Vicky, and then uh, standing up for himself when he, uh, Vicky and Knox are like taking the mick out of his room of uh, priceless billion-dollar antiques or whatever. <laughs> so, oh, that was a fantastic scene just to establish, yeah. you know, the trio, you know, the love triangle. But yeah, just yeah. by the way, I love Michael Caine, right? Michael Caine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoever, uh, no, Michael Caine. In the, oh, about Ken's Alfred, yeah, yeah, got you. Yeah, yeah. as Alfred. <laughs> but I do think um, whoever the actor was in this film played the part. <laughs> I can't believe you just so said that. <laughs> much better. No, I didn't research who the name was. I'm sorry. You watched a full movie with him in? It's the same guy from Batman and Robin. <laughs> Did you not realize that? <laughs> no. Well, um, what's it? Michael Goff. 
Oh, was, uh, of course, yeah. Who was also in Doctor Who as the Celestial Toy Maker. Great performance. <laughs> yeah, great performance. That's what I want to say. Yeah, as I say, he was one of the highlights of Batman Robin, which is a pretty bad movie. And I think he's good here in a very minimal role. But whenever he appears, he's really good. So that the kind of um, the humor of him running around picking up like the pen that Bruce has dumped in with the plants and the champagne yeah. glass he just dumps on the table and, and stuff. And a, and a cup of water um, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of, like you were saying, uh, that there's not a lot of humor from the Bruce Wayne character. There is one really good example, uh, which is, it's such a basic joke, but it always amuses me when uh, he's like in the room and they're not aware. And then uh, Doc says something like, Where do, what do you think this guy's situation is? And then Bruce goes, oh, it's from Japan. Well, wh what makes you say that? I bought it in Japan. <laughs> yeah. It's just how he allows oh. him to continue talking for like so long. And then he eventually jumps in. I think, oh, great. Well, I mean, you dug yourself. Up yeah, there. exactly. It's actually <laughs> It's cool. Um, I, I don't love the idea that he has like secret hidden cameras viewing everybody at the uh, the Wayne Manor. Um, like that's the reveal of where the Batcave is because it's through he's filming everyone. Um, mm. But I guess that's fine. That's how he finds out where Gordon's going by kind of spying on him. But again, yeah. I could have lived without a Batman a little bit sort of pervy in that way. <laughs> I guess. I'm not pervy, but just paranoid, as I'd say. Because there's yeah, nothing to imply that he was using it for like, you know, yeah. rubbing off his rhubarb or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> speaking of that line, <laughs> never rub another man's rubber. Uh, but yeah, speaking of that line, the uh, the originator of that, the Joker, this is the one of the bigger scenes because this is the Joker origin scene we get to, uh, which I think is like awesome visual scenery. Uh, he's at the Axis Chemicals plant and realizes when he sees the safe that he's been ratted out. Um, and obviously you get the tussle between Gordon and the bed cop uh, for like, no, I'm not, I'm in charge here. Don't anybody uh, shoot to kill, even though the other guy said the opposite. And then obviously there's a big firefight. Batman arrives as well. And that's, uh, as I mentioned, the um, there's a tense scene when Batman has to let Jack go because the other Bob the Goon is going to kill Gordon. Uh, yeah. But then Jack refuses to go and shoots at Batman. And the bullet ricochets and, like I said, goes right through the muscles of his mouth. Not that you would know that. And causes him to blindly trip over a railing. <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah, I'm watching it now. And, oh my god, it's dreadful. But they actually, you know, holding on, and then he's like trying to pull him back up, and mm. then he actually falls, and then it's you know uh, another you know what do you call it a spiraling shot. It kind of turns yes. around a bit. I think all that looks fantastic, but it's just the whole falling off the platform that looks a bit shit, to be honest. But then yeah. he, he, you know, he's engulfed by the smoke, and that's superb again. I also think it's very almost horror movie-esque. Like Burton doesn't make explicit horror, but he does definitely make things that are unsettling. And when you see the the, um, the reservoir that's kind of spitting the water out and you just see the slightly uh, melted yeah. hand with yeah. the deck of cards, very horrific. Very, brilliant. Brilliant, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, very good for um, a bit of nervous tension, I guess. Uh, and yeah, speaking of that, we get again, scenes that are funny involving Bruce that aren't really him being uh, funny is when Vicky goes for the date at uh, the thing and it's i think you mentioned earlier the comically long table where they're just on mm -hmm. inexplicably on either side of this massive long dining room table and she's like could you pass the salt <laughs> what and then in the end they just go and sit in the kitchen and uh, have a nice chat with alfred which is cool yeah that for, was uh, more sweet like more sweet a sequence than funny i felt it was like a yeah. character building like actually her you know trying to find his heart i i'd say yes. that's what that was yeah i would say that's perfect because uh, that makes sense <laughs> I said the same thing. I think that scene's basically there to show that they've got chemistry because she goes through like he he's trying this preening like I'm a billionaire and she cuts right through with um 
him eventually admitting, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. And then Alfred giving embarrassing stories about him and stuff. And uh, yeah. there is actual chemistry, I think, between Kim Basinger or however you pronounce it and Michael Keaton. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And I think um, that kind of dehumanizes his actual character as Bruce. Not dehumanizes him, but, you know, kind of lessens him. So when he's out as Batman and it's more serious, you kind of take the character more serious. But as Bruce, there's not much going for him in that respect because yeah. he doesn't like hype the man up to be awesome. It's more of the character that he's playing. Yeah, I think demystifies is probably the word you're looking for where it's not, he's not like this untouchable He's got yeah. billions of dollars and he's very aloof and stuff. It's very, no, no, there's a human being there when you actually get in, I guess. So mm. <laughs> um, that's cool. And the duality, I suppose you could interpret as that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the one of the film's key motifs is the duality throughout with, between oh, characters yeah, yeah, yeah. and even even the guy himself, yeah. you know. So I definitely mm. would agree with that. Um, yeah. The, so then we get to the second half of the Joker's origin, which is a awesome, like horror-esque, horrific scene, which is parodied brilliantly by The Simpsons, which if you haven't seen that clip, please go and find it. It's from the episode where Lisa gets braces. <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, I just love the fact that that scene's so iconic that it's it's like beat for beat the exact angle and everything in that Simpsons joke. Um, that yeah, it's really cool that we don't see the Joker very clearly. We just see his response to himself is derision. He smashes the mirror, then he just laughs maniacally, and then he goes to Grissom's office and he's in shadow, even though you can kind of see him a bit clearer than you maybe should. Uh, and you know, gets upset at Grissom. Wow, you betrayed me over a woman and all that, and then just shoots Grissom dead in very Joker style, just ridiculously over the top dancing around. And I love that the movie, in moments like this, it's like the, the movie has taken been taken over by Joker as well, because even the music is just very um, nursery rhymey and kind of cheerful, even though he's brutally murdering a guy. <laughs> so... yeah. The thing is, the music it was so, you know, loud and bombastic mm. and, you know, it kind oh, of... It's deliberately jarring, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of takes your attention down and then all of a sudden, boom, it brings you yeah. back into it. And I think that's what something the film does really well, especially when I rewatched that. Yeah. Rewatched Definitely, it, supposedly, yeah. watch it all the way through. It kind of gets your attention by doing that time and time again. And when you're trying yeah. to sleep on your couch with ambience <laughs> as the film yeah. in the background, then it's not a very good idea. But it's, when you're uh, watching it's... it full on in its intended view, it's great. Awesome. Um Speaking of iconic lines and stuff, we get uh, the Joker noticing the uh, newspaper that says winged freak terrorizes Gotham's gangland. And uh, the Joker, of course, says the line, wait till they get a load of me, uh, which is notable because it's already the movie comparing Batman and Joker, which becomes key. Uh, and it's a line that's so, so iconic that it's even used uh, as the last scene in the movie Kick-Ass, if you've ever seen that as well, uh, when the supervillain kind of takes up the role. Um, so, yeah, uh, the Joker going into Grissom's gang and basically... You know, uh, showing them uh, measuring uh, private parts and, you know, uh, preening to them, covered up in the weird makeup that he wipes off a bit to reveal his actual white skin is weird. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that sequence. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, the, the weird thing about that is that I was reading, because I never realized how they did that. I thought it, was some, it would be something like they put the white makeup on the cloth and it's easier to do it that way. Um, but no, they actually have, like, multiple layers of makeup on, which is so, like, weird, because they've got one, like... A really hard to take off layer of like white face paint, then like grease paint that they make that mimics like human skin that can come off as soon as you touch it with any kind of water. And then obviously his actual skin underneath. I was like, man, Jack Nicholson, fair enough, you earned your wages if you're getting covered in layer upon layer of makeup, you know. Um, it's gonna be one of those, you know, days where he goes into the 
the makeup car and then he's there for like 12 hours just to yeah. film like three hours worth of scenes exactly like, yeah <laughs> exactly but uh, no that scene is this scene is really weird though because it's very kind of dark and gross and uh i guess it fits the character and the kind of the idea that it's the criminal gangland but i just found it really weird and tonally a bit bizarre when he like electrocutes that guy and he just becomes like a full-on skeleton this is like veering too far into horror movie really isn't it no, you know? it's like a medium close up of their face and the head and i was like holy shit it was very horrific i could have lived without the uh, specific kind of grossness of the scene i get the, the dark humor and i'm kind of all right ish with that but i don't think we needed the full-on guy turning into a skeleton bit you know? no 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on, though, we get to Vicky and Knox uh, investigating Bruce and finding weirdly that he's got no past, which is uh, a subtle line that I hadn't noticed always in the movie, but I find weird now because it's like, surely that would just make it more suspicious <laughs> if, you, if they're finding nothing about you and they're wondering who Batman is. Like, they should just find stuff about Bruce Wayne, the secret identity, shouldn't they? But yeah. <laughs> Having said that, I suppose if they found out about his parents being murdered, it might lead them to the Batman thing. So I'm okay with it. And again, they make the parallel towards the end when, you know, uh, the Joker realizes Batman is, you know, Bruce and whatever. So that does come up towards the end. Yeah, completely. And the cathedral stuff and stuff. Yeah. But um, in terms of like the way this movie plays with the origin, I think it's probably one of, if not the best way to do it, because it doesn't just do it in an over the top kind of scene straight off the bat, because it, it kind of drips and drabs the, the thing. So. You get like Bruce lying, basically saying he's got something to do to be out of town. And then he's followed by Knox and Vicky and they find him laying roses on the alley where his parents were killed. But it doesn't mm. explicitly say what that's about. So it's a very sort of film noir and again, detective movie-esque. Uh, what, what is this? What does this mean? And we're slowly unraveling the layers. And I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some callbacks to that again towards the end that I really appreciated. Definitely, yeah. I mean, they do, they do eventually do the flashback scene, but at least it's not like... Uh, you know, up top in the very Zack Snyder, like this is the first scene of the movie kind of thing, you know? No. Um, but yeah. Uh, then we get the scene that's, uh, it's just basically there to, to move everything uh, along. So it's the press conference with the, the mime and the Joker dressed up like a mime and killing a guy with a pen just so he can make a pen mightier than the sword pun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great pun. <laughs> I mean, it is, but come on. <laughs> then, yeah. Uh, but what's good about the scene is that when uh, everybody's getting gunned down, there's like a look of, it seems like actual shock uh, with Bruce Wayne because he's there obviously as Bruce and he's just kind of walking through the, the gunfire, not phased because it looks like he's having this traumatic flashback and uh, Vicky's like wondering what's going on and stuff. And I was like, that's a really nice like character touch that they don't over egg, you know, um, mm. which is cool. Uh, then obviously the, the, um, Bob the Goon's been taking photos of Vicky and the Joker naturally because it's a bit of a sexist movie. He starts lusting after her and like, oh, this woman, she's, uh, she's got style. We're going to go after her. Uh, and yeah, then... she's kind of out. And then, you know, the car where, <laughs> her pant, where it's just like a load of foes across the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. But I mean, he is the bad guy. So we can kind of, I don't think we're supposed to emulate the dude at this point. So uh, no. yeah. But uh, speaking of which, he does uh, go back to the Axis chemical plant and now begins altering chemicals with the uh, Smilex. And uh, that's when you get the one of the more iconic things, which is the new scene where they're talking about, you know, the, the models that have died with rictus grins. And then the newswoman begins laughing hysterically and she dies horribly. And it's very uncomfortable to me, very jarring visuals, but it's also very Tim Burton. that They die as like a freakish looking, almost body horror. Um, yeah. And then 
once you're kind of really unsettled with that, it does the complete opposite and jumps in with the Joker taking over the TV and doing like a comical, oh, he's been using brand X to like yeah. fake advert. And I, I think like, that's actually just... my favorite, you know, sequence. You know, the whole news reporter dying, whatever. That mm. was bloody freaky as hell. You know, the it constant, was, yeah. you know, callbacks to, you know, the TV adverts and stuff before and after the event. It, it, mm. it was really good. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it makes really good use of the Joker because, again, it's very common. Uh, kind of idea for the comic book character and stuff to do that and terrorize people in that way and it's not for financial gain or anything it's just to be gross basically and to make everyone a freak i guess a bit like me in that way or a bit like him um but i also think it's probably the funniest scene in the movie when the joker points out you've probably already bought these chemicals and then it just cuts without saying anything to the news footage of the following day and none of them have makeup on and they're all like really pale and spotty because they're terrified of wearing anything and i was yeah. like that is that is brilliant subtle visual humor and i love it yeah <laughs> um the next scene again is uh it's pretty iconic but it's the uh flugelheim museum scene this is the first uh use i think of the Prince soundtrack in the movie, uh, the song Party Man, as the Joker kind of busts in and starts wrecking the art and stuff. Um, and I, I love this. I don't know why, because I, it's over the top and I should really be like, it's ridiculous, it's going too far. But I love the dark humor of them kind of trashing the paintings and then uh, spotting the George Washington and seeing it was the $1 bill and the Joker stopping the guy because he likes the one painting. <laughs> and again, it's uh, it's so it's like I said earlier, it's like the film has been taken over by the Joker because even the camera angles are like shaky and weird and kinetic and uh, it looks like handheld at times. yeah 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 absolutely yeah you know using that effect to you know do the jump cuts or whatever yeah i completely agree and like I said, it's almost it's almost like it's turned into like gonzo homemade filmmaking like the jokers grabbed the cameras and like no i'm gonna film me and whatever else but yeah. uh yeah very in character for that uh for that dude and like i said that song Prince's songs are all great in this movie, but that song just fits that scene so well, the way they're dancing around to it and stuff. So. All of Prince's songs are great, full stop, to be fair. But, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that goes without is, saying, but yeah. Yeah, one of the greatest. But uh, my score really doesn't reflect my thoughts in this film because my score is not particularly the highest. But when you mentioned it, I was like, oh crap, this was my favorite scene. So I've got about three different <laughs> favorite scenes because it's so, so bloody great. It's not yeah. a great film, but you know, it's got those little sequences where you think, I love this. I know what you mean, because I think I've said the same thing. There's a lot of really cool, memorable things, but I don't think there's anything, like as you mentioned it, you'd be like, oh yeah, that scene was great, that scene was great, but there's nothing where you could point to it and be like, that one scene was hugely action-packed exactly. and the best thing, and um, it's just a lot of really good scenes put together, which is not bad by any means, but it never quite hits, as you say, that stratospheric, like, oh, now this is something else uh, kind of scene. Um, but yeah. Uh, speaking of this scene, though, we do get um, the Joker kind of introducing himself to Vicky as the world's first fully functional homicidal artist. And uh, again, just weird, weird dark humor that I bizarrely like. But then uh, when Vicky says, what are you joking? And he just replies, do I look like I'm joking? And she shrugs like kind of, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, but again, because it's Burton, horrific reveal of uh, jerry hall's character alicia has been like horribly scarred with uh, like acid actual burns and white bleached skin uh, because the joker just wanted to make somebody look freakish like him i guess and uh, yeah very well done very powerful again for me anyway um but what were you what were your thoughts on the the rest of the museum scene anyway <laughs> oh it was superb i wasn't a fan of the um the woman's performance you know reacting to mm. you know the scarring i thought that was quite monotone and flat uh 
especially compared to you know the Joker's charismatic performance, and it was think, as uh, if the, he was you know trying to egg her on to you know give it a bit more oomph. But she I think that's supposed to be the it. case though, because he does mention in the future scene that she was so kind of unhappy with what happened and depressed that she kills herself. So she's not meant to be like, oh, I'm thrilled with this. So I think that's deliberate no, 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 is that no, he's thrilled, kind of... But, you know, just, you know, <laughs> showing the anxiety and, you know, the yeah. not wanting to be there a bit better. In my yeah, opinion. yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, yeah. generally, it was, it was a really cool scene. I, I do like it. And it's one I of the standout too. scenes. And again, the music from, you know, the use of diagenic music with the whole mm. radio stuff. And then it, you know, he turns it off and then it cuts to silence. And I thought, yes, brilliant, the brilliant uh, filmmaking. There, Speaking but, of um, like spending 12 hours in makeup as well, what did you reckon of the thing when she, she like hurls the jug of water at him and he does the whole Wicked Witch melting thing and then just goes boo and they like melted the sort of fair, regular skin makeup into the white? That must see, have been a nightmare to film. <laughs> yeah, because I thought, you know, when he was saying, oh, I'm burning, I'm melting, I was like, oh, he's not being serious. He's, you know, taking the piss mm. a bit. He's yeah, pulling yeah, her leg. And then that fact that it was actually a bit melted, I was like, oh, okay, so they've actually kind of done that. And I was, yeah. I would have rather it just be, you know, pure out and out, he's joking, because he is the Joker. I mean, I mean he, he is kidding in the regard that it's just taking away the kind of false makeup he's put over his bleached skin. Um, yeah. But I do like the visual you get of like when he's taking the mic and then he just scares her with like boo and it's like the half melted into white face. It's kind of a, exactly. kind of a Joker level of freaky, but yeah. Yeah, um, like I do it, like the, it's a great performance, but again, definitely. I don't think it um, holds up. Well, it does hold up, but when you compare it to um, Heath Ledger, for example, who gives... Mm. Oscar worthy. I don't know if he won an Oscar. He did actually, um, yeah, posthumously. Oh, yeah. There we go. Then he was just fantastic. And I do think he absolutely outshines uh this Donny. Fair enough. Um, I know some people would disagree. We used to have disagreements, and it was again, it was um to do with how old you were and what generation you were, because there was a guy we used to work with that insisted that Jack Nicholson did it first and did it better and Ledger was just copying and taking over what uh, Nicholson had done and we were all like no nah, no Ledger was next level and uh, there's actual disagreement there which I like because there's not a really bad Joker performance amongst those two we don't talk about Jared Leto <laughs> yeah I, I <laughs> and, do uh, wonder how many people of those like are just stuck in the past like mm. out and out oh yeah the best. their original are the best yeah but again think you gotta respect you know subjectivity and whatever yeah, I think it's because, like I said, Jack Nicholson was the first time it had been played and it wasn't ridiculously, like, respect to Cesar Romero for what he did in the 60s TV series, but that really is just, like, a circus clown. There's no, <laughs> there's no other layer to it beyond that. Um, and this was the first time it was, like, menacing and freaky and uh, crime boss-esque, I guess, as well. So, yeah, I can see it. Um, but what did you make of the next scene when Batman literally just drops in through the skylight and uh, the Joker says his iconic line, where does he get those wonderful toys? And then they leave in like the Batmobile and what have you. <laughs> oh, it was a great action sequence. And again, I think I mentioned earlier the scene that is subsequent to that is you know a great little moment. And mm. you know, it's like what what is there like a specific name like the goons or something? They're just goons. No, right? I just call them the goons. I mean, I know Bob, the main guy, is uh, is called that because he's um it was Jack Nicholson's friend that he got cast, so it was kind of a right. big story at the time. That's how yeah. I know his name. <laughs> But it's just, you know, the guy with the swords and whatever, he's doing these... Oh, that stupid things. ninja. Oh, he's the worst. Yeah, and then he literally <laughs> just boots him in the chest, and I think, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's very Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark again, you know, isn't it? When he shoots him, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I hated that. The fact that like these, they're just a random gangland mob, and then all of a sudden this like incredibly well-trained ninja with two swords jumps in, and I'm like, where did he come from? Come oh, on. Yeah, but again, it's a bit <laughs> camp, it's a bit hilarious, and I love it. Ah, see, I don't because I don't I don't like the camp. I'd rather the film didn't go there. Um, but yeah, I do have a few uh, weird facts about the uh, the Batmobile itself, though, because this is the first time you see it. Um, which is I love the design, love that it's got cool afterburners, and um, I did actually, as I've mentioned, have the toy of it, which would fire missiles from the two things at the front. Uh, nice. You know, not questioning why exactly Batman would fire missiles if he's not meant to kill people, but you know, it was a toy. What am I going to do? <laughs> um, but one, uh, there's a couple of weird things that they hadn't considered when making the toy that I always remember. One of which is that I had the video game based on this movie, even though it was for like the old personal computer, the Amstrad. Um, and, they couldn't actually figure out how to get the car to turn because of the design of it. It was terrible when it came to cornering, and you actually see they've written it into the movie that the only way it can take a corner is to fire a grappling hook against the lamppost and then just let the momentum drag it across. Because <laughs> yeah. the wheels in the front and back just do not turn enough to let you do anything else, um, mm. which got really weird because like it was incredibly annoying trying to find lampposts to be able to turn around when you were playing that video game. And... Uh, <laughs> The, the other thing is that once they took the um, initial kind of finished concept to the people that were making the movie, they said, it looks fantastic and everything, but where are the doors? <laughs> and they realized it didn't have any doors on it and thought um, somebody came no, up with the ingenious idea. Uh, no, but somebody came up with the idea that, oh, crap, oh, in which case we'll just make the canopy slide forward. Um, like on, I think it's certain planes or rocket ships do that. So if you notice in the film, that's how they get in and out is that the entire canopy at the top of the thing slides forward to reveal the seats and everything because they just hadn't put doors on either side of it. Oh dear god. <laughs> Which you'd think would be the first thing they would think of but nope, not always. <laughs> yeah, I do love the, sh the little canopy and the fact that it's got like badass weapons and the, the shields even to kind of keep it from uh, getting robbed or anything. That really was cool. pretty decent CGI of the shielding as well. Definitely, yeah. Cannot, didn't it cannot cannot be practical. No, it couldn't have been, but yeah, you're right. It is very, uh, very good uh, early special effects, I guess. It, it, it was a bit quick, but I think they had to make it quick to kind of mask it. But I think that had a reverse effect because because it's so quick, the CGI, you notice it more because it stands out and you have to really focus your attention on it in a brief period of time. And it mm. does look a bit, eh, but you know, it's still an impressive use for the time and i think it is yeah. definitely this film is a product of its time it doesn't particularly oh, yeah. hold up but you have to respect it and it does look rather brilliant again for its time yeah it's a cool design though i've got a toy of that batmobile even i say a toy i've got a model of that batmobile even now which is mm. in front of me at the moment and uh, i just love that's probably my favorite design the 60s one's really cool and close but i love this one more than any of the others and definitely more than whatever they've done recently with just tanks and stuff but yeah uh, yeah um, anyway, we get a quick reveal of like uh, the goons pull up Batman's cowl and are distracted by Vicky taking a picture of him. Um, so Batman does the whole Batman thing and saves her and takes her to the so Batcave. <laughs> What's that? So what moment? Oh, when they get distracted and then he pops up and then I think, oh, oh yeah, yeah. even they take the picture in the first place. Yeah, um, and it's even more dodgy when he basically he takes her to the Batcave and. Then to get her back to where she's going, it's like, uh, there's another reason why you've got me here. And he basically just knocks her out and steals the film. So I was like, dude, that's pretty dodgy, <laughs> you know, what you've done there. Um, yeah. But I do like, even though you don't see it, I do like that there's been actual detective work by Batman. Because you'll have heard everybody complain that Batman is supposed to be the world's greatest detective. It's part of the character in a huge way in the comics. Never really been done on, on film. Um, 
but there is a little bit here that he's figured out like the joker it's only certain mixes of chemicals that do it again would have preferred to actually see him working that out rather than just telling us about it after the fact but you know at least he's done something detective like i guess <laughs> so, mm. and, uh, yeah would you agree with that about uh batman as the detective <laughs> i i'm not into the comics so i really wouldn't know to be honest yeah You've oh fair enough too much free for me there Fair enough. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, the newspaper runs with the idea of Batman cracking the Joker's code and the Joker gets mad about it. And you know, I've given a name to my pain. It's it's Batman and what have you. Um, so then the two kind of forces of the movie meet because Bruce goes to Vicky's apartment to basically tell her his identity effectively as Alfred's almost talked him into it. Just as the Joker goes to kind of be mad at her for running off with Batman. Uh, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the film because this is one of the rare times that I think uh, the movies ever really fully acknowledge that Bruce Wayne has to be just as insane as Batman to be <laughs> to be dressing up as him and stuff. So the, Michael Keaton's performance when he's like he's talking to Joker calmly one minute, then he just gets the poker and whacks it, and he's like, "You want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts." I was like, "Yes, that's exactly like Bruce Wayne would be wound up that tight and just be that level of like absolutely crazy." Do you know what I mean? So uh, one of my favorite moments, and and love that he's clever enough to even though he gets shot, she figures out later it's he'd, he'd like hit the tray the dining tray or whatever up his shirt so that's what took the bullet for him very nice and again i'm not surprised you said that because when i was actually you know researching their responses to this film that's something i've already noticed you know the whole again duality but again they had to be so intense and um crazy and i think they definitely captured that with i guess a lot of praise can go to the direction but who wrote this it was written by um I can't remember that. I think it was Warren Scarston and uh, Sam Ham were the two writers, but then Sam Ham wrote the actual screenplay. Um, he was, which I know because he's currently writing a sequel comic called Batman '89, which is really good. So do check it out if you get a chance. Um, okay. Because yeah, it's the same writer, but yeah, he's uh, he was famous at the time for doing it famous enough, and uh, I think it is. It's a very well written movie, and uh, the comics are proving he kind of knows and understands these characters, and it's cool that they're doing things that we'd never got a chance to do because they didn't do more of these kind of Burton sequels. So it does introduce the kind of Harvey Dent Two-Face and a version of Robin and stuff like that. So yeah, mm. definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of these, this movie and all Batman Returns. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I've mentioned this already, but then when uh, they go to the precinct and Knox has uncovered the, the Wayne family murders, that's when Bruce obviously also spots Jack Napier. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a nice scene of Bruce giving... Bruce being given the file by Alfred, and I really noted uh, the line delivery, and the, it's such a small moment, but the delivery of um, I'm not going to spend my last days grieving for old friends or their sons by Michael Goff as Alfred. I was like, that is, that's nice. That's a really nice touch. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then obviously the city uh, attempting to cancel the parade, or there's a quick mention of it, but again, the Joker takes over TV, as you've mentioned, uh, including his comically like sliding the image of the government officials out of the way and stuff, uh, and promises you know cash for all of the people that do attend and a showdown with Batman uh, with his little taunt of, I've taken off my makeup, let's see if you can take off yours, which again, just continually reinforcing the connection between Batman and the Joker, uh, which gets all the more so when... Bruce looks at him and the file and starts to put together just who this Jack Napier might be. Uh, yeah. Because he'd also, um, he, I forgot to mention it, the, in the Vicky's apartment scene, he'd heard, you know, do you have a dance in the pale moonlight kind of quote um, from him that he then remembered from the night of his parents' death. Uh, I really so, like yeah. that sequence as well because you can really sense that he's kind of snapping at her. Mm. 
And it's like the final payoff to that whole story. Yeah, it's done really well because even the flashback, as I said, to something that's become so overdone now that people groan at it, which is the the parents' murder origin. This flashback for me really works because the angles and the the lens that's on it are very uncomfortable, and it's clearly him reliving like a childhood trauma. Um, yeah, and, and like a, yeah. <laughs> Again, the claustrophobia feel, and it's a bit you know different to the sequence we saw towards the start as well. Yeah, but um, as I said, it's it's also basically there so that he can reinforce that yes, this Jack Napier is because he's figured out Jack is the Joker, but now he's also figured out it's the, the same person that killed his parents, which, as I said, controversial at the time. It's a huge change from the comics where they were killed by a random uh, criminal called Joe Chill, which you'll know if you've seen Batman Begins, obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I was curious because you've asked me your, uh, my thoughts on this. What are your thoughts on that change then with the idea of uh, the Joker killed Batman's parents and effectively created him? <sighs> I... Mm. I guess it kind of makes sense narratively because, again, they seem throughout this movie intertwined because the, you can never go maybe 20 minutes with Batman without mm. the Joker coming in. It's like no matter where he is, he will always be there. So I guess it kind of makes him inseparable. And it does beg the question, where were they for, you know, that, that whole timeline of, between, you know, the death and now? Maybe he had to, you know, be scarred and become the joker for that to really kick in and for the wards to collide um yeah. but yeah i just really get the sense of that they're inseparable so it kind of narratively makes sense and they did the groundwork for that at the start of course so yeah i yeah. think it was all right i agree i think well obviously between the moments i would say that it's it's um jack napier was working his way up in chrism's mob or whatever and yeah. obviously i would assume bruce was off training with raz al ghul or whatever and uh, becoming batman but uh, yeah. I do like that link, the fact that, um, you know, the Joker effectively is responsible for Bruce's madness by killing his parents. And Bruce is responsible for Jack Napier's madness because it's him that, you know, inadvertently or whatever, dropped him into the acid and scarred him and made him into this version of the Joker. So, I, I, again, I know it's controversial and just in the interests of balance. I know that people who don't like it would argue that it takes away from Batman's mission because the whole point is that, like, um, it could be any criminal that does this and hurts somebody. And so that's why I'm going out, taking out every and all criminal because i don't want this to happen to any other kids and i get that but i think for the story this is telling which is specifically two people who are insane because of each other it works really well for me um, yeah yeah i, I agreed again bringing that plot point up yeah yeah not problem but again thematic nature yeah well it, it is a, it's kind of it is a, an important plot point and it is a theme of the thing and as i say it, it culminates in literally them saying that in the scene at the end which i may as well mention because it feeds into it now which is um like Batman even telling Joker, what I created you, well, you created me first kind of thing. Um, mm. Literally spelling it out for you. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, I have to mention the next scene because it's a scene that the was one of the studio rewrites that the writer of the movie has disowned because he doesn't like it, which is Alfred just letting Vicky into the back. Of <laughs> oh, yeah, that's another controversy in terms of like how Alfred was written compared to the comics. And I thought, well, for God's yeah. sake, well, um, <laughs> The writer of the movie says that that would be Alfred's last day of employment at Wayne Manor if he just let some, <laughs> some woman into the back game. Um, but on watching that with that in mind this time around, I did actually sort of... Uh, I would defend that and say that she probably told Alfred that she'd already figured it out because you had all the scenes where she figures out about Bruce Wayne's murder and the line where Knox even says to her, what do you think that does to a kid? So in my kind of head canon, she'd already put two and two together. So it wasn't like she went there and Alfred was like, let me show you the truth. It was like she went there and said, yo, Alfred, I know Bruce Wayne is Batman. And he was like, 
all right, I'll take you to the back game. You figured it out kind of thing, uh, which makes a lot more sense, I suppose, in that way. Uh, yeah. Mm. Then obviously Bruce uh, does the whole cliche tortured thing of I want to love you, but I've got this mission to do and I've got to go and do it. And we get the very cool suiting up scene, which is nice because it's way subtle compared to the, uh, you know, cod pieces and bat nipples of the suiting up scenes that we were getting <laughs> later. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. How can we forget? Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the next scene, I'm not sure if it's just there to fill time or something, because it just seems really weirdly out of place that Batman is like vengeful because he's figured out what he has. So he just goes and sets off a ton of explosions and blows up Axis chemicals, even though the Joker just escapes on the Joker copter anyway. I was like, that scene oh, it's is really a brilliant sequence in terms of, you know, how he was shot. Like I was like, always oh, dropping his he's dropping his balls and they explode and i think wow <laughs> and you know the musical score really complements that and i think mm. again we i don't think we've really touched upon it the music is fantastic oh i will definitely get to that but yeah the music as i said danny elfman's score and prince's soundtrack are both iconic for a reason they're brilliant yeah uh, and yeah but yeah this scene for me just jarred because it seemed very reckless and kind of almost endangering people of Batman to just be dropping huge bombs out of the Batmobile and destroying the entire building. And then it's pointless anyway, because Joker's just in a helicopter like, ah, bye, you missed me. Yeah, it's it's respectful. <laughs> like, this very subsequent scene is like him uh, being called over, and then he, you know, turns his head, and you get the wide shot of the fire behind him, and then you have the Batmobile, and you have Batman looking strong into the sky. So it's for the money shot, you know what okay. I mean? It is a very yeah. impressive, practical-ish Okay, that's fair enough. If it works for you in that on that level, then absolutely, that's cool. It's, um, it's respectable, but narratively, yeah, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Well, we said there's not a lot of action in the movie, so as I say, there's a chance that it was like the studio or whatever was like, chuck in an action scene somewhere that we can use for the trailer. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so third act now, which is Joker showboating around, throwing money to the Prince music, uh, but reveals that his actual plan is releasing Smilex gas. Uh, and this is when you get my favourite gadget of the movie, the Batwing. Uh, as it's known, the plane. Um, it's really confusing because there's a character called Batwing in the comics now, but that was the name of the plane back in the day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he uses the, the Batwing to grab the balloons and float them away harmlessly uh, and does that really cool. And I'm really curious what you think of this shot, which is when the Batwing sort of goes up and silhouetted against the moon to form like bat signal. <laughs> you not like it. If you're asking I love me, it. I think... Oh, okay, thank God. Yeah, because I was really like, and I was like, oh, God, should I say I like it if you absolutely despise No, it? I love it, but I was really concerned because I thought, like, for a younger generation, somebody might look at that and be like, that is too cheesy. That is a step too far, and I adore it. <laughs> yeah, again, it's another piece of, you know, exceptional direction. And again, when I, you know, watch these films nowadays, I think if I grow up and make a film half as good as this, I'll be like, amazed because it's such yeah. a, you know it's so superbly made and i love that sequence and even if it is a bit cheesy or whatever for some people it wasn't for me and i was just like impressed because i was like how the hell would i do that if i were making yeah. it because i'm currently you know in, in university and whatever and mm. i'm learning how to make this kind of crap <laughs> yeah. but in terms of you know it actually is crap that i'm making right now because i'm just you know just now and i, I think one starts somewhere dude Exactly, and I think that's just brilliant. So yeah, it was yeah. A, you know another really small but standout moment. I, love it. I it's I'm probably my favorite one of my favorite moments, if not the favorite of the movie. And I just love that. I'd love to know where Burton, because presumably it was him, since it's a visual thing, where he thought about like 
ah, this plane just basically is the bat symbol. And if we reflect it against the moon, and I was like, I'm really pleased they went with that because it's such a cool image and I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. On a slightly less uh, enthusiastic level, um, I hate the Joker's stupidly comical long gun that he uses to shoot down the, the bat wing um, because oh, yeah. it's patently stupid. Like I get it's the Joker and whatever, but it's so ridiculous. And when I was reading up on it, I found out it was entirely because it was supposed to be a tank that was going to be revealed as being underneath one of the floats. But then the studio just took the money away and was like, nah, I think of something else. You're not, we're not affording a tank or whatever. And I was like, well, it doesn't work otherwise. You know what I mean? I ironically <laughs> loved the floats. I was like, oh yeah, the floats in, are cool. Bring, yeah. more. bring in some more, have them for longer. They were awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, anyway, he's especially the clownish one. Yeah, the like the weird sort of tantrum baby and everything that yeah. bizarre. And again, Burton kind of grotesque, aren't they? But mm. love it. And uh, yeah, obviously the Batwing is shot down somehow by a pistol just because it has a really long barrel. Whatever. <laughs> and then Vicky runs to rescue but gets kidnapped by the Joker. Uh, this is another scene that the film's writer disowned because he says that at this point he doesn't know why the Joker decides to run up the cathedral, uh, which I would respond to him with, watch the movie, it clearly tells you he's getting taken from the roof by a helicopter. He calls for the escape, film writer. <laughs> but, Richard, yeah, the own writer doesn't understand what he wrote. Well, he didn't write that part. Like I said, the studio did rewrites on some stuff oh, uncredited. And uh, he was like, oh, I didn't like that Alfred let Vicky in the back cave. I didn't like this. And th they got to a point at the end of the movie where the Batman's chasing the Joker up a cathedral. And I just wondered why they were in a cathedral. And I was like, well, pay attention. Then it clearly tells you. Yeah. But yeah, th this is the ultimate like kind of last act of the movie in the final showdown. So again, really clever that the Joker uses as like acid to, to melt the bell and block the cops from getting up there so that it does literally give you just the face off of Batman and the Joker with Vicky. Um, my favorite joke in the movie here as well, which is we met quite the couple, Beauty and the Beast. But if anyone else calls you a beast, I'll kill them. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cheesy, but I love it. Uh, yeah. And then the obviously, final 10 minutes are quite brilliant. The definitely, yeah. Stuff, yeah, it ends on a real I, high. I don't love that um, Batman vows to kill the Joker because of his parents' death, because, you know, Batman really shouldn't kill, but I get it at this Revenge, point. I suppose, um, yeah. Because of the motivation of his parents and stuff, and mm. because of the way that it is, it's playing the two of them linked in that way. Um, and this scene is extremely like German expressionist. Uh, that's a, I think another reason that they used a cathedral for the the gargoyles and the set decoration and everything. So, and because that is very much, it's almost a Dr. Caligari like uh, two sides of the same coin thing with Batman and the Joker. And I think that's why Batman is at his lowest and like I'm gonna kill you. Um, mm. But then yeah, obviously they start inexplicably dangling over a ledge because it's the end of the movie, so they have to, and the Joker's trying to escape, and then Batman, I guess, does kind of kill him in a way, shoots the batarang or whatever you call it, the grappling hook onto the Joker's leg, back to a gargoyle, pulls him off, and uh, the Joker falls to his death, to his death as Batman and uh, Vicky swing across and get saved. Or never and... spiraling shot. Yeah. The but, um... does like those shots like, of him spinning, and I think, oh my God, stop, you're dizzying me. Yeah, that's again, it's very Tim Burton, but especially when something's happening that I think is meant to be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And what did you think of? I've never really, I've never really known what to make of this scene, but I think I like it. The scene when um, the Joker's lying there dead, grinning, and the toys just going, ah, ha, 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 ha. Um, what did you think of that? Oh, uh, not much to be honest. I guess it kind of encapsulates his character. So. Yeah, it's all right. I think I appreciate it on the level that it's kind of evocative and macabre, and it's, I guess, dark humor. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I think I like it, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so then we get to the epilogue just to finish off the movie. Vicky has dumped any investigation because she's going to be Bruce Wayne's girlfriend until she gets dumped off screen before the sequel. Uh, <laughs> Gordon and Dent declare that the crime wave is over and unveil that they have a message from Batman. Uh, but And how can they communicate with him? Because he's given us a signal and it reveals the bat signal and a really cool goosebumps inducing ending to the first movie culminated in uh, that super iconic silhouette of Batman on the rooftop watching as the bat signal shines. And it great. looks so clear in the sky as well. It yeah, fantastic. it's so good. I really love it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, just quickly then, uh, something that I've started doing. Uh, I want to know what is your favourite character, your favourite scene or moment from the movie and your favourite line of dialogue. Okay, so my favorite character was be the um the third wheel in the love triangle, that journalist. Knox. Yes, I found it quite okay. amusing. Um again, it was like a character that was brilliantly set up. You know, you said there was a bit a few sexist movements in there, but mm. those aside, um I thought it was a pretty awesome character. Again, it's a shame he was, you know, brushed aside eventually. Yeah. He was he just cropped up now and again. But yeah, I think he'd be my favorite character, even though there are, you know, other highlights. Um my favorite quote, did you say? Uh, well, scene or moment and line of dialogue, whichever order scene you want. <laughs> moment. Uh, my favorite would be probably the new the new sequence. Where oh, the, the Joker taking over. Yeah, and oh, the news reporter yeah. is, you know, laughing and then dies. And then, you know, you have the pop-ups of the news segments with the Joker. I thought those were pretty fantastic. And it felt really real. Like, the realism there was superb. And I thought, mm. I can really get behind this, you know, like a real news. Again, because there was examples of, you know, vision mixing. So, you know, pr production things in the background. It wasn't just, yeah. you know, TV okay. screens and whatnot. So, you know. I appreciate that level of creativity and, you know, respect for the industry. Um, so yeah, that'd be my favorite scene. Awesome. And then favorite quote is, uh, rhubarb. <laughs> Never rub another man's rhubarb. Yeah, you know me. You know me. Very random. You know, but okay. you know me to the points that that would be my favorite quote. I think so. You know. Yes. There's lots of iconic quotes and lines. I noticed that you've actually made your um, name on the computer number one guy. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah. I forgot to mention actually that that line uh, was improvised because uh, obviously oh, really? Jack Polance, as Grissom, does that to Jack when he's convincing him to go. And then Jack does it really over the top back to Bob in that one scene. And apparently mm. that was an improvisation of um, Jack Nicholson doing a bad impression of Jack Polance that they decided was funny and kept in the movie. <laughs> Which okay. I was like, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll quickly go over my stuff then. My favorite character is uh, Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Uh, but I could totally see the argument that's often made that Joker steals the show. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that as such. It's just for me, I always lean more towards the heroes and I like, uh, arguably, I think people would agree that Bruce Wayne, uh, that Michael Keaton is the first person to play a convincing Bruce Wayne as well as Batman. Um, I'm not mm. sure what you would think about that. Would you agree with that or, or not so much? I hugely prefer Kristen Bell and only as that. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, whereas I think, yeah, um, Christian Bale doesn't really play Bruce Wayne as a character. He's kind of the, which again, people might prefer because it's part of the comic law that he's the the front. He's the other mask. Uh, whereas I like that Michael Keaton's Bruce has a bit of an inner life and shows you yeah, that kind of torture fair. and uh, whatnot. <laughs> that's fair, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, my favorite scene or moment, um, my favorite, it's just basically anything with the Batwing from the moment it kind of swoops in heroically and takes the balloons away to that cool shot against the moon <laughs> that I was talking about. Mm. Um, but again, there's lots of contenders, a lot of really cool scenes. Uh, and my favorite line of dialogue, again, most of the lines are iconic. You can find parodies of a ton of these lines in everything from The Simpsons to Mall Rats and beyond. Um, but my favorite, even though it's just a really cheesy gag, just for the subversion of it, is what I mentioned uh, just now, the where we make a great couple of Beauty and the Beast, and if anyone else calls you a beast, I'll kill them. <laughs> because yeah. it's just pretty amusing to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, so we will, uh, I'll give our conclusions then, and then I'll go on to the audience interaction quickly at the end, if you don't mind, there's not much to go through. Um, so I'll start with you since you're the guest and, uh, if you don't mind giving me your conclusion and your score out of five stars. Okay. Bit unconventional, but to quote Joe Hart, it is decent. <laughs> Tell him lads. <laughs> Three you, out of you, five. Okay. Okay. That before. It was was that your entire conclusion? That's my conclusion. It is decent. <laughs> yeah. Joe Hart meme decent, and you gave it three stars. Okay, I gave it a three out of okay. five. It's alright. That's lower than it's I good. thought you would go, but I can kind of see where you. Where I, you I might did mention it earlier. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's a load of set pieces, and it's a load of good scenes stitched together with you know a plot that meanders a bit. Um, again, creatively. It is date in not uh, it's dating the respect that if it was released nowadays you'd think oh that looks shit but yeah you know, you, stuff yeah, you respect yeah, it for yeah. the time yeah, yeah and you know there are some standout direction directional moments and i yeah. do really rate it so yeah it's okay. definitely um on the positive side in which case i said uh, my conclusion is that it's an ideal matchup of an auteur filmmaker with the source material to be adapted. Burton was a perfect fit for so many aspects of Batman history and lore, um, especially to claim the character back from the extreme camp of the Adam West version, which had become how the character was largely known. Uh, Batman has been lots of things over the decades, but this version comes very close to something like the perceived ideal uh, and takes obvious cues from the comics that were popular at the time, as I mentioned. Um, it's not a perfect film. It plays a little bit fast and loose with established character and sometimes even logic. Um, Burton also occasionally lets his own indulgence overpower the source material and the story. There's a couple of misplaced scenes. And as I mentioned earlier, the film began the trend that Burton would uh, take even further in the sequel that he's more interested in villains and uh, freaks than he is in the title character. Speaking of which, it's very much a character piece, uh, which makes it lack slightly in terms of iconic or memorable action scenes. But for me, it moves at a brilliant pace, never feels like two hours, has scenes that have become iconic cultural milestones. Um, the music, direction, cinematography and set design are exceptional. And uh, the movie is entertaining and tells a brilliantly structured, incredibly well-made story of its own. Uh, so I went with four stars out of five. Four stars, um, okay. Which, uh, yeah, so the obviously the overall score for the Silver Screen podcast then, we would decide that Batman 1989, 3.5 out of five stars. Not bad warranted, warranted, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's that's still uh, still a hit, as you say. So that's good. Of course. Yeah. So um, just remains for me to do the uh, the next section then, which is the audience interaction section. Uh, if you're a regular listener of any of our earlier episodes, you'll know that I put out um, tweets and social media messages asking what are your thoughts on this movie, uh, which I did here, and I just have about a dozen or so <laughs> tweets about this. Some of them quite short. Um, at Michael Stern 37 says, I love Burton's Batman films. I was a teenager at the time, and these were the first real superheroes for me as a young adult. I was only six when Superman came out earlier. Keaton is amazing as in the role, and I can't wait to see him in the flash. <laughs> awesome. 
Uh, at Mr. Underscore Sorcerer says, I appreciate how this movie admits that Bruce is a bit nuts and you're never quite sure how much of it is an act. Keaton is so good and the oppressive heaviness and corruption of Gotham is well represented. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, my friend at M. Louise Epp simply said, it's my hubby's favorite, then tagged her husband who jumped in to see it. Yes, um, that's at Ian J. Palmer, I should say. He says, yeah, I love it. Love the gothic and art deco mix. Love the way Bruce Wayne is just as iconic as the Joker. The music is outrageously good, as is the cinematography. I'd never seen a film quite like it when it came out. Preteen me was blown away and it's still my favorite Batman film. Okay. Um, yeah. At Chris Dawn 16 says, growing up to me, this was the best version of Batman, this one and the animated cartoon version, which, as I say, goes a lot to this. Um, Stefan Lineman says, iconic, maybe not the best Bat movie, but the first really good one. And the Smilex TV had scared the shit out of me as a youngster. <laughs> Fair enough. And finally, John Glasgow just says, I loved it at the time. Obviously, we've had be better Batman movies since then, but I still love it. It's my favorite Tim Burton movie, closely followed by Beetlejuice. So, yeah, I think a lot of praise. Nobody really criticizing the movie as such, but I think, uh, yeah, it's debatable whether or not it's better than future Batman movies, but uh, it'd be interesting <laughs> to do a comparison. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for joining me. It's good to uh, to reconnect and uh, and review Batman, and I'm really looking forward to uh, the new one in, well, when this comes out, it'll be released tomorrow as you're listening I'm to so this. Excited. So, I'm so excited. Uh, are you going to see it as well, yeah? <laughs> On premiere day. Oh, premiere. nice. Yeah, I've I think I'm going to try. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, so stick around for more film reviews uh, of upcoming movies. And uh, if you're excited for the Batman, let me know on social media or in the comments below. Uh, Wheel, is there anything you want to shout out to plug uh, or to tell people where to find you on social media? If you want, you can subscribe to the Big Screen Podcast. I do a similar thing, except I make it far more difficult than it needs to be by doing bloody franchise reviews instead of one single movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you do that. Yeah. <laughs> you were the one who set that trend off because you did Halloween and I thought, well, you know, that'd be a good idea. I didn't like, do the entire oh, Halloween franchise. I did two of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why we're splitting the Halloween thing up into like four parts because it's a beast. Yeah. Uh, I will eventually do that. So... God, those. Yeah, if you want to go over there, I'm sure it's probably linked below. I can imagine. I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. If not, just search it up. Um, but yeah, other than that, like, subscribe to this channel. Uh, because yeah, great videos. I really liked the awesome. one with Andy Kemp, but I'm a, a bit biased. Yeah, well, I love that movie anyway. The Princess Bride review, one of my best, I think, <laughs> if I do yeah. say so. But, uh, I yeah. did enjoy awesome. that a lot. Um, does you uh, do you want to shout out your Twitter for the um, the big screen podcast or or yourself if you like? <laughs> uh, yes. So if you want to search up um, the podcast Twitter, you'll have to do the big screen pod. If you just put up a big screen pod, you'll come to a you know a really random one that's based in America or something. And ah. yeah, yeah, I don't know what they do. I'll link the right one below anyway. <laughs> yeah, the big screen pod and my personal. Twitter is will underscore Templar. Uh, so yeah, awesome. give me a follow over there awesome. if you want to. That's great. And uh, you can join me. Uh, I have a sister podcast to this where I review uh, Star Trek called the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. We are in the middle of our second series focusing on the Borg and other advanced AI. Uh, you can find that just at Hit or Miss Star Trek on YouTube or Spotify uh, or at HOM Trek on Twitter. Uh, you can follow this podcast at podcast underscore screen on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, you can follow me just at Ian Mike Wilson on Twitter and just my name on, like, Instagram, Facebook and everything. Uh, hopefully I will be back within the next four weeks or so with a new review. 
And uh, yeah, in the meantime, thanks again for uh, for joining me, Will. I appreciate you taking the time, and it was really great to catch up with you. And hopefully, we can do this again soon. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> therapy. It, it was yeah. therapy. <laughs> awesome. Catch you. Catch you later, everyone. Yeah. And remember, <laughs> in the immortal words of Arnie, I'll be back.